All right, we're going to continue this morning in John chapter 1. I, I figured the last two Sundays, while the other guys were preaching, I was the last one to sit down over there because I was busy talking, so I can't really pick on anybody now for, for still talking, so that's okay. So far in John chapter 1, we have seen the unfolding of some glorious truths about the person of Jesus Christ, about who he is. Jesus Christ is no less than eternal creator, God who took on flesh, becoming the God-man who dwelt among men. Now, these truths are central to our salvation. The fact that Jesus Christ had to be a man. Stuart said it last week, it goes back to the, the promise in Genesis chapter three of a savior who would be born of a woman. And it's carried on through scripture all the way to Hebrews chapter two, where it says that Jesus took on flesh in order that he might die in the flesh and destroy the power of death. And so Jesus experienced temptation in the flesh. He suffered and died in the flesh. And when he rose again, he rose again in bodily form with a resurrection body. Jesus also had to be God. And we've seen this truth throughout John chapter one. We've seen 1, 1, 1, 18, and then couple of other places in John where Jesus affirms that he and the Father are one, that before Abraham was, he already existed. But I'd add to that list Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13, Hebrews 1, 8, 2 Peter 1, 1, all use the Greek word theos, which is the common New Testament word for God in describing Jesus. And so it's saying that, that Jesus is God, that he had to be because it required a sacrifice of infinite value because Jesus Christ was God. And it really is only God the Son who was able to bear the wrath of God the Father as the price for our sin. That's not something that some created being could do. Now, sadly, we can take these truths for granted. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably been hearing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ from Sunday school when you were a child. And you know the story and you know how Jesus was born of Mary and that he lived as the God-man and that he gave himself on the cross and died as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. That's why this next part of John chapter 1 that we're coming to this morning I think is helpful in helping our own hearts respond to these truths. John the Apostle, who writes the Gospel of John, is going to show Jesus to us through the eyes of John the Baptist. It's going to help us respond to Jesus by watching John the Baptist respond. By seeing Jesus through the eyes of John the Baptist, we get a, a better glimpse of ourselves in the light of Jesus. We know the Gospel of John was written with an evangelistic purpose in mind. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. And, and so John is purposely trying to explain to us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But in the course of that, Getting the clear view of Jesus also helps us to get a, a clear view of ourselves and our need for Jesus. We, we need to see our own selves in comparison with him, as John does for us here this morning in John 1, 19 to 28. Uh, we're going to go there in just a few minutes. I'd, I'd like you for just a moment to turn, though, back to Matthew chapter 11 and, and get to know John the Baptist just a little bit. John the Baptist, who becomes this focal point in John chapter 1. John the Baptist is not the one who wrote the Gospel of John. John the Baptist was born, just as Yetzian Angel said in the, uh, the lighting of the, the candle, born just months before Jesus was born. 
John was born to Elizabeth, whose husband was Zechariah, who was a priest serving in the temple in Jerusalem at the time that he learned of, of, Zech of Elizabeth having this child. Luke also tells us that Elizabeth, the mother, was related in some way to Mary, and so there's some familial connection there then between their sons, between John and Jesus. As an adult, John is sent to be the messenger. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, and throughout the Gospels, that point is made. Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, we'll see John himself say it here in the passage that we're in, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy that speaks of one who comes and cries out in the wilderness as a voice and says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path of the Lord. And so John does, he comes and he's preaching a strong message of repentance from sin, he calls people to turn from their sins, to be baptized as evidence of their repentance, and then to live lives that are evidence of that baptism, of that repentance, to, to bear fruit that is in keeping with that repentance. And so it's John's ministry to the people around him. He then baptizes Jesus rather reluctantly, does not really want to do that right away because he doesn't fully grasp his role in, in terms of baptizing Jesus and what the, what the purpose is. And we'll see that in our text just briefly, his baptism. Uh, and eventually, John, we know, was imprisoned. John would later die in prison. He was imprisoned by the regional ruler, Herod, uh, who hated John's preaching because John was preaching against Herod's sin, sin of adultery. Here in Matthew 11, John is already in prison. He sends some of his disciples as messengers with a question, more of a seeking confirmation, sending a message to Jesus and saying, you are indeed the one, right? You are the one who is to come. And so Jesus answers the disciples and sends them on their way. And then in Matthew 11, verse 7, he speaks about John. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 11, I want to key in on. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When John the Baptist preached, when he called for them to repent of their sins, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Language that Jesus uses here when he says the least now in the kingdom of heaven. John, as he's preaching that, is talking about the coming of Jesus. He's talking about what is coming in terms of a king. And yet for John, it is still sort of all future. He, he's not seen it yet. It is still to come for him. There's still details that aren't filled in completely for John. He knows that he is preaching ahead of the Messiah and that this is the, the start of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. After Jesus died and rose, he ascends into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. And we who now trust in Jesus become a part of his kingdom and it is growing and it is expanding. And ultimately, we'll see its greatest fulfillment when he returns, when he returns for his people and then establishes his kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth is formed. And so even for us, there's aspects of the kingdom of heaven that are still future, that we still, we can see in scripture and understand from scripture, but we haven't seen yet and still lie before us. For those, though, who belong to Christ now, 
we have unique advantages over John the Baptist because this was all still in the front windshield for John the Baptist. This was all still to unfold. We now read about and see the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We understand how when John cries, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we, we now can read and see how that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his perfect sacrifice. We, through God's Spirit, know that by believing in Christ, we are drawn into the body of Christ. We have a, a communion with God, the likes of which John the Baptist did not yet experience. We have an intimacy with God through the working of his spirit as we now dwell in Christ. And so that's the point in Matthew 11, 11, when he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. He's not saying that we're somehow better than John in character or we've done better works than John. That's not his point. His point is to say we have this enormous privilege in that we, we have seen this now fulfilled. We have seen the one who inaugurates the kingdom of heaven who has come and given his life and risen. And so we have great privilege and advantage over even what John the Baptist experienced. I, I say all that because he links us with John here when he speaks of no one among those born of a woman being greater than John, and yet those in the kingdom of heaven, even the least, being greater than he. He's joining us together, and I think it's helpful because when we get back now to John chapter 1, and we see John responding to what he knows, and much of it is prophetic, and he's looking forward, even in this anticipatory state, his response should show us a little bit of our response, what it should look like. His reaction to the coming one and pointing to this coming one should help us better see ourselves in the light of the risen Messiah. So I'll show you what I mean. Let's go back to John chapter one. I'm gonna read the whole section that we're gonna look at this morning and then we'll go back through it. It's gonna be verses 19 to 28. John one, starting in verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John, it's clear from this text, serves a vital role. It is one designed and commissioned by God to be a forerunner, to be a messenger, to go and to sort of pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. But John, the writer, is also very clear in helping us to see that there's a distinction between John the Baptist and Jesus. And John the Baptist is making it clear that he is not anything supernatural, that the one is an ordinary man, empowered by God for service to, to carry out a task, and the other is Jesus. The other is eternal God in flesh, and, and the two are distinct. John does not have the power to save sinners, to turn people's hearts. He can preach repentance, but he can't change their hearts. John is a humble servant. 
with a clear message that is all about Jesus and all about preparing people for the coming of Jesus. And that's really the gist of what we'll see this morning. John is a humble servant with a clear message that's all about Jesus and about preparing them to meet Jesus. When he, the passage begins in verse 19, uh, the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites. That term Jews is used often in the book of John, most often to, to refer to religious leaders back in Jerusalem, and that's the case here. They, they've sent a group, a, a contingent to go out because they've heard about John the Baptist and his, this phenomena of crowds going out to this man who has sort of been a wilderness kind of guy and who has not really been on their radar. And now he's preaching, and of all things, he's baptizing and they're curious, and so they, they send this delegation out to investigate him. Mark 1.5 says, People from all over Judea, including Jerusalem, went out to the wilderness around the Jordan to hear John preach. So there are crowds of people who have left their homes, traveling in some cases nine hours or more, just to go out and be told, you need to repent of your sin and be baptized. And needless to say, the the Jewish religious leaders are wondering, what, what's the draw here? Who, who is this guy that crowds are going out to hear a message of repentance? And why are Jews being baptized? The Jews were familiar with the practice of baptism, but it was typically, as they understood it, for conversion from being a Gentile to a Jew. And it was, historians tell us it was typically an act of self-baptism. If you wanted to confess, the, the, the statement of baptism is you walked into the water and you immersed yourself and you rose up. And that was a statement of washing away the, the, the old life, renouncing the old way of life and saying that you would now be, you would function as a Jew. And so what John is doing is at best odd, at most it's troubling, because here is a Jew who is baptizing other Jews and telling them to repent of their sins. And so it raises this question of authority, which is fundamentally why they're asking him, who are you? What gives you this right to perform this kind of baptism? You can see how this presented problems for the religious leaders in Jerusalem. John is at minimum making them uncomfortable the reality is it, it really is making them incredulous. Uh, in, in, in verse 25, they basically say, if you're not some kind of supernatural being, if you're not the Christ or you're not Elijah returned from the dead, then who gave you the right to do this? What business do you have to have this authority over people? And so they demand, who are you? John leads in his response to them by immediately, verse 20, he confessed, he did not deny but confessed. Here's John the Apostle, the writer, trying to make it as clear as he can. This John the Baptist, in, in as clear of language as he could say, said, I am not the one that you think I am. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. I'm not the one who has been sent in that way. And so then they say, well, are you Elijah? Goes back to God's last promise in the Old Testament of things to come. In Malachi 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Elijah never experienced physical death. We see Elijah in 2 Kings 2 go up into heaven, witnessed by his colleague Elisha and 50 other prophets, and they see Elijah just carried up into heaven, and he never dies. They see him no longer. And so the expectation by the time of Christ is not only is there some kind of Messiah coming, but Elijah will return. Elijah will come back from heaven, and, and he will sort of inaugurate the coming of the Messiah. There's a sense in which John did fulfill that. Even Jesus speaks to that in Matthew eleven fourteen. 14. John is Elijah who is to come. 
John fulfills the, the function of the ministry that was proclaimed 400 years earlier in Malachi. So why does John then say, I am not? Because he's not literally Elijah returned from the dead. That, he's answering their question. They, they are expecting a literal Elijah to return from heaven. And John is saying, no, I was, I was born of a woman. You, you, you know my ancestry. And so I am not he. So then the question, are you the prophet? And he says, no. This goes back to Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses there says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so religious Jews have this end times expectation of a Moses-like prophet. And John again says, no. It's interesting that his, his answers become shorter and more pointed as he's going along because you can almost sense John's, I don't know if impatience is the right word, but his his desire to end this part of the conversation and move on to what he is really called there to do. I am not the Christ. Are you the Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. He's just emphatic at this point because he is, he is determined, and, and, and really here's where the first sort of insight comes for you and I. He is determined to not allow himself to become the center of attention. At that moment when the Judean religious spotlight is on this guy and what he is doing, and there's all sorts of curiosity about him and a chance for John to sort of step up and, and make himself known. He is determined to say, it's not about me. Look again at verses 25, uh, 25 through 27. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That last phrase, that last sentence in that verse is, it should, should capture us and help us to think about how we see ourselves in the light of Jesus. At that point in history, it was very customary for a rabbi's students to be as servants to their teacher, to, to do all sorts of even menial tasks. The way that they, they paid for the discipling they got, for the teaching they got from the rabbi, was to, to, to meet that person's needs, to meet that rabbi's needs, and to care for him in every kind of way possible. But there were limits to that service, including most anything that had to do with the rabbi's feet. Uh, one ancient writer, uh, a Jewish rabbi, wrote this, All manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoe. Even for disciples, it was considered too menial, too low a task, too much to expect for them to have anything to do with the dirty feet of the rabbi whom they followed. First thing that should do is call to mind Jesus washing the disciples' feet and cause us to marvel again at the measure of humility, that is, that our Savior, eternal God, now in flesh, would bow before the feet of his disciples and would wash them. But if we look at this now as John did, I'm not sure that he could have found any clearer language to make the point that I am nothing before this one. This is the, 
This is the awe that is filling John's soul at this moment to try in some way to communicate to them. Stop, stop making this about me. Stop asking about me. This is not about me. If you could only see the one who is to come and understand who he is, you would see that I am nothing in comparison, that I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. I'm, I'm hardly worthy to be his slave. When, when you and I correctly see who Jesus is, when, when we come through the truths that we've read throughout this beginning of John chapter one, and we see him as eternal creator God in flesh, and we see how he died on the cross for our sin willingly as a substitute for our sin, and we see that he rose from the dead and even now is interceding for us today in heaven, continuing to care for his flock, how can we not give him full attention and full glory and not respond like John does and say, stop focusing on me. It's not about me. It's about my Savior. It's about this, this one who has come for us. It's the one who's coming for John. And he is the one you need to look to. So here, let me apply this with some questions. I'd ask myself, and now I'll ask you, and you can think about these for a moment. Just some questions to help. So someone's telling you a story of how they, they met a famous person or they were witnesses to some incredibly newsworthy event and they're telling you all the details of this story. What are you thinking about? What's going through your mind as you're processing that? And, and what, are you, what are you likely to say after they're done? What, 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 what response will you give them? Hold on to that one. Someone's regaling you with their child's latest accomplishments, telling you they're, they're all of the wonderful things their child has done. What, what are you thinking and what will you say next? Or one last one, you're listening to someone answer another person's question. Someone's asked a thoughtful question, you're listening to their answer, what are you thinking and what might you say afterwards? If we're telling the truth on at least some of those occasions, it would not be unusual if I was thinking about some famous person that I saw and preparing to tell you once you finished, oh, well, you saw so-and-so, but I saw, and, and fill in the blank at that point. Or thinking about my child's accomplishments and preparing to respond with my list of highlights from the week or the month. Or recalling some dramatic experience that I had witnessed or something that probably one-ups you just a little bit, right? or listening to you answer their question thinking, uh, I've got a better answer, I've got a fuller answer. Moments like those can help expose that craving in our hearts for self-promotion, for look at me, listen to me. Um, you know, that, your story's interesting, but now let me tell you about me and my story, because it's really interesting. Our desires to be heard, seen, affirmed by others are very real. They're not necessarily always bad, but we've all felt that inner angst when someone else gets rewarded in some way or attention in some way that we feel like I too should be getting that reward. Or in fact, I should be getting it instead of that person because I know that I actually put in more work than, than that person. Watch a newscast when a reporter's standing on the street or standing outside a stadium. And what do you inevitably see behind that reporter when they go out to the reporter for the live shot? All the people in the background, 
I've done this, I know this. Um, I've actually done it and been on the phone to say, if you look now, right? Human nature is such that we love to, to promote ourselves. Look at me. Selfies and social media, it, it's, it's not all bad, and I'm not trying to say it is, but, but it also can encourage that sinful appetite for, look, look at me. Look at the beauty that I'm experiencing at this moment, and, and, and look at how, how good things are for me. One pastor said, selfies create a world where people take something that's not about them and make it about them through the lens of their camera. We, we have these self-seeking propensities to, to be heard, to be admired. John is, is challenging us, I think, here with, with the, the, the eagerness to admire Jesus, to, to turn other people's admiration to Jesus, to, to make sure that Jesus is evident as the center of our being, as the reason for our hope, as the cause of our joy, as, as the heart of our peace, that, that they see that it's Jesus. And, and John's showing us from, from all of the truths we've meditated on over the last couple of Sundays, John is just giving us a wonderful response to how we should meditate on these things to say, it's not about me. He is glorious. The eternal creator, God, takes on flesh and dwells among men. God leaves the breathtaking majesty of heaven in order to make a way so that you and I can one day experience the breathtaking majesty of heaven should just cause us to be in awe of him and to seize the opportunity to say, this is emphatically not about me. And that's what John's doing. It's about the one who comes after me. Several times the New Testament commands us toward humility. It instructs us that humility is a, a fruit of the spirit. We know that. And, and humility should characterize our life. But the truth is, like John... And, and, and even more so than John, because we know more than he, looking at Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, what he did, should cause us to not just know humility as a characteristic of our hearts, but it should be evident in our lives, the humility that displays Christ as being the center of what we do, that shows through us, seeing his greatness, should make it so that I find my greatest joy in exalting Jesus, praising him, testifying clearly to others that he is the reason for anything good you see in my life and where you see hardship in my life, any peace you see in response, any patience, anything that's good in response, that too is his doing. That is his work and he deserves glory. In what ways does your life display the glory of Jesus? And, and not just during an hour on Sunday morning, but, but throughout the week. When, when people try to know you better, when they start to look at your life, when they begin to do like the, the investigators and they ask you questions, do they, do they ultimately come to the place of saying, this person really loves that Jesus, really likes to talk about Jesus? Do they, do they come to the place of seeing that Jesus ultimately is at the heart of who you are and that being a humble servant of his is the most joyful thing that you have in life? The irony, I think, in John's interrogation is he is the son of a priest. And so when they come out, when Judea has come out, all of these people are surrounding, and now you've got this investigating delegation. This is the guy whose father was serving in the temple at Jerusalem when, when, when the angel came and spoke to him. If you're John, you could seize this moment and say, you want to know who I am? 
Remember hearing about Zechariah and Elizabeth, the two people who were too old to have a child? I'm that son. I'm the, the miracle baby, right? He could, have done all, he, he could have easily said to the crowd who came out and was listening to his teaching, Let, let's chase these guys back to Jerusalem. Let's get them out of here. And John probably could have turned the crowd against those religious leaders. And yet, what does he do? None of that. He's not argumentative. He's not difficult with them. He's not trying to elevate himself. He's not trying to grab the spotlight in that moment when it was right there to be grabbed. Instead, he seizes the opportunity to say, it's not about me, it's about the one who is to come. He is my strength. He is my life. He is the one. Take a moment and just turn over to chapter 3 in in John. Uh, Some followers of John, this is before he's imprisoned, some followers of John now are concerned because the ministry of John is beginning to diminish. Jesus has come, and Jesus is ministering. And so these disciples are seeing John with less of a role, Jesus now becoming the one who people are following. And so John 3, verse 26 This is his followers. They came to John, John's John's own disciples. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Look at John's answer, verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. First piece of that is John saying, wait guys, (laughs) you're you're acting as if it's my ministry versus Jesus's ministry. There's no my over here. This is whatever I have was given to me by the Lord. Whatever I possess is a stewardship from him. And so I'm just trying to be faithful to that. So I don't own these crowds. And so these crowds are doing the right thing by following Jesus. But then he pictures himself, secondly, as the best man at the wedding. How much attention should a best man get? Now, I'm sure some of you could tell stories of best men who who blew it in, in their shining moment and stole more spotlight than they probably should have. But ideally, the best man, if he hands the ring off at the ceremony and he does a nice toast at the reception, it's good. He's done his job. And, and the rest of the time, his job is to make sure the spotlight is where it belongs. It, he, he's, he's just serving there to serve the groom. He's there to elevate the groom, to make sure everything goes well for the groom. And, and, and that's what John is saying here. It's hard to point to Jesus Christ if I'm more concerned about being liked and admired and, and, and people rallying around me and hearing my humor and, 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 and being drawn to me and my cleverness. Is his glory on the rise in my life or is my self-promotion getting in the way? The, the, the real insidious part of all this too is when we, we talk about our peace, our faith, our strength, our joy, our contentedness, apart from these things coming to us from, from the Lord. When we act as if we, by the, the force of our own will or by our own good work, somehow generate these things. And, and, and don't point back to saying any peace contentment, strength, hope, faith I have is on account of him. It is his work and, and he has given it. And, and, and the thing that John shows us here is in his, his shrinking back, he doesn't do so with a sad face. He doesn't say to his disciples, yeah, sorry guys, I got to decrease, he's got to increase. 
What does he say? He says, I'm like the best man, and the best man rejoices at the sound of the groom's voice. The best man is like, he's the man right there, and and I I am just here to support him, and I love this guy. And and that's what he's saying. He said, "I, I... I get to decrease, and he gets to increase, and I get to be a servant who's, who's just part of, of decreasing while he increases. Praise God, and he rejoices greatly, it says there in John chapter 3. Go back to chapter 1, and I just want to read verses 22 and 23 one more time in John chapter 1. So they said to John, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Once again, it's not about me. John was a humble servant with a clear message that was about Jesus and preparing to meet Jesus. The investigative party at this point is getting impatient and they're getting weary. Okay, John, we got it. You're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. We gotta go back to Jerusalem with something. What do we tell them about who you are? And what is John's answer? He simply says, I'm a voice. Just tell them that you heard me say something and identify me as by my role as a servant. Just, just tell them what you heard. If you only remember one thing about me, if you only tell them one thing about me back in Jerusalem, just tell them you heard a voice that said, repent and prepare for the coming of the Lord because behold, here, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as we'll see in next week's passage. Just tell them what you heard. You don't need to identify me any more than that. And then he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John happily, humbly understood his role and embraced his role. He was not called to perform great miracles. He was not called to prophesy of the future and events to come. His job was not to be the center of attention. John was merely to say, This is what God has sent me to tell you. The Lamb is coming. He's going to take away sin. You need to prepare for him. And he fulfilled his calling with a simple message. The one who is to come is so great, so worthy of honor and glory that you best prepare your heart to stand before him. And that's his, his message of preparation. The way, the, the, the way that he's serving them is by telling them, I, I'm not even worthy to be called his slave. He is of such infinite value and, and so mighty that the best counsel I can give you is you better prepare by turning from your sin. You need to repent of your sin because the Holy One is coming. We saw it often in Isaiah. The nature of man is to twist God's law and to, to contort God's ways and, and to take what God says is straight and to try to make it crooked to take what God says, this is, this is right, and to try to say, well, so is this. And, and we rebel against our creator. Man denies the creator outright or at least functionally and tries to bend the clear decrees of God to conform to my own desires. This is, this is what I like, and so I want, I want God's decrees to, to, to go this way. And so that's why man then undermines the authority of the word of God. It started back in the garden when, when Satan said, did God really say that? Did he really tell you that you couldn't eat of that tree? That's not what God said. And even if he said it, he didn't mean it because God wants you to enjoy yourself. God wants you to have the greatest of pleasures. And if this looks delightful to you and pleasurable, why would he deny you? And if he would deny you, then he's a bad God because you should have that because it's right there. And and so desire it. Well, that, that same mentality is what carries on in our world today. If there is a God, he certainly wouldn't deny what I enjoy. 
And into the darkness of our sin, John the Baptist comes and he says, make straight the way of the Lord. You have perverted God's ways and you have disregarded God's law. Make straight the way of the Lord. How do we do that? You, you start, he says, by repenting. You acknowledge your sin and you turn to him and you prepare to follow him. John the Baptist's life was different. We know he lived in the wilderness. We know he didn't wear soft clothing. He wore harsh kind of clothing, that he had an odd diet. There's all these things about him that sparked people's curiosity. And so they came out and, and here they are, who are you? But it's important for us to see that his life was not enough in, in, in this sense, John had to speak. People were intrigued and curious, but the humble servant also had to say, the Lord is coming, prepare for him, repent and turn to him. John's commissioning from the Lord is not an isolated calling. You and I, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been commissioned to be a humble witness who points to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and who says, look, he is the one. He is the one who saved me. And, and, and you, you should turn to him. You should trust in him. You should turn from your sin and you should believe in him. A voice that graciously warns of the coming of the Lord of glory. Romans 10, 14. How are people to believe in Jesus if they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone declares the truth? A humble life, a, the life of a servant of Christ is, is good and it may attract curiosity and may even attract a degree of admiration from other people who may see you as a nice person, a, a be kind kind of person, a loving kind of person. But humility and kindness alone is not enough to lead someone to faith in Christ. We also must speak to them about who he is and what they must do in order to stand before him, that he is a mighty God and they must be made right before him. If you've been saved by God's grace and you're trusting in Christ, then your life and your voice belong to him, to be used by him for his glory. And we should be, like John, gladly rejoicing at the idea that God used me in, in, in whatever way. Please, Lord, give me opportunities to speak and, and to point others to Jesus Christ. But it all starts as it did for John just like it did for us these last couple of weeks with, with coming to grips with the truth, the awesome truth of a great and mighty eternal God coming and taking on flesh and dwelling among man that he might give himself for us and one who is so awesome that I have no business even kneeling down and touching his sandals and yet is the one who says, come, come drink of the water, come receive life. The mighty king humbly gave himself for sinners. And now you and I are privileged to be servants and to speak his truth and to, Lord willing, emulate John in the sense that when Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Simple, humble servant who declared the truth about Jesus and prepared others. Such commendation remains for all who will obey what Jesus said in Matthew 16. And I'll end with these verses. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that everyone in this room and all listening online would, 
would know you for who you are and what you have done. These truths that we have been meditating on over these last few weeks that so captured John the Baptist's heart and ambition and ability that all of it was now trained solely toward declaring you and your greatness. Lord, I pray that for each one here and online, you would capture our hearts in the same way to to see you in your glorious majesty as coming from out of heaven to, to suffer and be nailed to a cross and be the perfect sacrifice to remove the penalty of our sin. And as the majestic one who is coming again for his people and to establish his kingdom. Lord, I pray that if there's any here who are are not at that place, that you would graciously open their hearts to embrace this truth, to see you for who you are, that your spirit would do the mighty work of bringing about new life and faith. Lord, for we who are trusting in you, we thank you for the example shown to us through John the Baptist and the reminder of the glorious place you've given us in ministry to be able to rub shoulders with the world and to have people in our lives who we can point toward Jesus, who we can speak to about Jesus, people whom we can testify to about his greatness and his majesty. Thank you for the privilege that is. May your spirit enable us to be bold, to speak truth, but to live humbly. Help us, Lord, when we are tempted to try to conform you to our will, to try to hone in on your spotlight and see if we can take some of that for ourselves in some way. God calls us to repent of that and to find our greatest satisfaction in being that humble servant who longs to decrease and see you increase through our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for the truth, the gospel. Thank you for the opportunity now to worship you together and lift our voices. And we pray it in your great name. Amen.